The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hello, my friends, and welcome to another exciting episode of Negotiate Anything. This show is produced by the American Negotiation Institute, and with over 5 million downloads and listeners in over 180 countries, listeners just like you have made this the number one negotiation podcast in the world. Hi, my name is Kwame Christian, and I am the founder and CEO of the American Negotiation Institute. Here at ANI, we believe that the best things in life are on the other side of difficult conversations, and we are passionate about providing you with the best content that will help you to make your difficult conversations easier, both at work and at home. Lastly, I want to remind you that we offer consulting and conduct trainings, both virtually and in person, all around the world. Our focus is in three main areas. First, negotiation and conflict resolution. Second, leadership. And lastly, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Check the link in the description below to learn more about how we could work with you and your team. And now, without further ado, let's jump into the interview. Welcome to this special episode of Legal Angle. And I have with me today a, well, a brother, a special guest who has just written one of the most substantive book I've read this year. And it's called How to Have Difficult Conversations About Race. His name is Kwame Kristen. Welcome to the show, Kwame. Thank you so much for having me, my friend. Appreciate it. Thank you. And can you tell us a bit more about yourself? Yes. Well, I think the the most recent news is I am a fan of you. Uh, That introduction that you put on was incredible, just inspiring. So thank you for sharing your story and and being so open with it, with the books and the podcast. I think that's that's necessary. And um, about me, my name is Kwame Christian. I'm the founder and CEO of the American Negotiation Institute, where we conduct negotiation and conflict resolution trainings that make difficult conversations easier. I'm also host of the number one negotiation podcast in the world, Negotiate Anything. And um, our goal is to change the world one difficult conversation at a time, because we believe the best things in life are on the other side of difficult conversations. And what we want to do is just help people all around the world to make those conversations easier. Thank you. And you sure do know how to make people have difficult conversations because I've gone through this book. You know, this is, like I said, this is the most substantive book I've read this year. And you can see it's all how highlighted all papers in between because it's so powerful. Can you tell us what inspired you to write this book? My wife, <laughs> Whitney, that, that, that's the simple answer. Um, because in, when I used to work in the, in the civil rights field, doing um, civil rights work, focusing on health equity, um, I did that for, for many years, but I became really emotionally burnt out. And I ran as far away from the topic of race and injustice as I possibly could, because it felt like no matter what I did, it was just a drop in the bucket. And then, um, you know, I went as far as to actually on social media block everybody who talked about politics or race or anything like that because I just wanted to avoid all of those conversations, including 
<laughs> my wife Whitney. Everything was fine with us at the time, but I said, Whitney, I just, I, your, your posts are bringing me down. I'm not interested in hearing this. But then when we fast forward to, to 2020, I'm here with the American Negotiation Institute. Um, I'm a lawyer as well, so I did uh, business law and mediation, and so I, I changed the career, moving in this angle toward negotiation and conflict resolution. And um, Whitney had a difficult conversation with me. She said, here you are, and you are constantly telling people in your audience and your followers and fans about how important it is for you to have these difficult conversations. How does it look for you then, a black man who is in the field of negotiation and conflict resolution, to not offer yourself as a resource and avoid this conversation? You're doing exactly what you tell other people not to do. And um, when I when I was faced with hypocrisy, that was so clear. <laughs> I, had to, I had to make an adjustment. And so I, I started off with a webinar on with the same name, how to have difficult conversations about race. Um, we we had an overwhelming response. The post I made went viral, and then uh, a literary agent reached out and said, "Hey, this is your this is your second book." And um, I didn't want to write this book, but I felt like I needed to write this book because when it comes to equity discussions, when it comes to these uh, th these really important conversations on the topic of race. The thing is, we need advocates and we need allies who are skilled when it comes to making the case. And I, I realized there was a gap in the industry because there's a lot of research and a lot of great materials out there on the racial inequities that we're facing, the racial challenges, and then some maybe prescriptive measures on what can and or should be done to create that positive change. But oftentimes allies, change makers, they, they have the data, they have the statistics, and then they go into these conversations and they're confronted with this reality of what do I do when my facts don't work? <laughs> because reading this data and information was moving to me, but then I try to have a conversation with somebody else and they just disagree. What's the problem? And so for me, I wanted to create a tool that helped people to turn their passion into persuasion so they could actually have these conversations and turn them into opportunities to connect and learn from each other and solve problems instead of um, combative altercations when we're, where we're just trying to do mutual damage. And so that was really the impetus to what led me to write the book. Thank you, Whitney, for inspiring to write the book and leading people to turn their passion into persuasion. You know, we are all a product of our past and you wouldn't know who someone is until you know the journey they have walked. And for you, you are a first generation Caribbean American. You emigrated yeah. with your parents when you were very little. Can you tell us how your life was as a child being a first generation immigrant? Yeah, it was it was challenging, but really enriching. And so my parents came here for their education. Um, they met at Howard University in, in D.C. And um, so I was always raised with that rich cultural heritage uh, of the islands. Right. Of, um, well, my dad's from the island of Dominica. Then my mom is from Guyana. Um, and so growing up, though, in Tiffin, Ohio, where we were <laughs> by clearly the minority, um, it was really challenging, um, but it taught me a lot. And I now at the time I, I was um, I found it difficult, but now I really appreciate it because it's given me the ability to connect with all sorts of different people, regardless of their backgrounds. And um, 
it wasn't something that I fully appreciated at the time. But as I've gotten older and I've started to interact with more people, I started to realize that this is a superpower. It was a challenge, but I think a lot of times when we look back at our lives, the things that we admire and appreciate the most were those challenges that we've overcome. And, um, and so it was challenging, but it, my family, we were a very loving family, very supportive. And honestly, the community was great as well. Um, and uh, that made it easier. And I, I think about the stories that I've heard of other minorities growing up in all white spaces. They didn't have the, the luxury of being in a place as good as Tiffin. Tiffin and the people in there in Tiffin were very good to us. You know, um, it just whenever you're somebody different growing up in, in a place where not many people look like you or sound like you, it, there, there are going to be challenges regardless. But I think I, I have to definitely count my blessings because it was a pretty good situation. Awesome. And your father is a sergeant and your mom is a professor with a PhD. How did yes. that impact your career choice? Yeah, it, it made me clear that education was going to be part of the answer. <laughs> I, that, that <laughs> you had no choice. choice. <laughs> yeah, no negotiating that. The career did was definitely... Pressure? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But I think in, in a good type of way, I think the parents can definitely go overboard. And I've heard those stories, especially with immigrant parents. <laughs> you know, they can be very demanding, <laughs> you know, but uh, my parents were demanding, but they tempered their demands with love for sure. And uh, the, the beauty is like for me, I knew college was going to be a part of the equation. I figured grad school was going to be part of it as well. And so I think really what they put in us was that that standard. They set the standard for what was and was not acceptable. And they wanted to make sure that whatever we did, we were trying our best and, and continuing to move forward and doing things for the betterment, not only of ourselves and our family, but the community. And so you're seeing what I'm doing here. But um, my brother also, Kobe Christian, he is um, in politics and he's trying to create positive change by being uh, one of those behind the scenes political operatives, um, living that really you know, that brisk walking, fast talking type of lifestyle <laughs> that is a little bit too stressful for me. But um, it was really great having that. And, you know, as a child, I don't think you fully appreciate just how impactful that can be. But constantly having their, their support, their love and support and guidance was really meaningful because it helped us to, to keep on a, a striving for more. So what inspired you to become a lawyer? Ah, great question, man. And so I was a, I was studying psychology in undergrad. So I was studying psychology and I had a I was getting a minor in Spanish and I wanted to be a therapist. That's what I wanted to do. And um, then I realized that if I went into therapy, either I decided to be a psychiatrist or a clinical psychologist, I realized that my impact would be limited because I would be working with one person at a time. And so I said, well, if I get into politics or policymaking, then it puts me in a position to help more people at the same time. It's just, it's more efficient. So I'll be a politician. That's what I'll do. And so I decided to add another minor. And so I got a minor in um, foundations of law. So it was a psychology degree, minor in Spanish and minor in foundations of law. And then I went to law school at Ohio State and uh, got my master's of public policy at Ohio State as well, dual degree. And um, I learned something really, really important while I was there. 
I learned I don't want to be a politician. <laughs> and so I was saying, what am I going to do? I have this degree and my plan has been thwarted. What, do I, what am I going to do? And so I discovered negotiation while I was in school. And it was the first time I saw psychology so clearly represented in the, in the law. So I was really just enamored with it. And then it was the first time I realized this really important point your ability to negotiate, your ability to resolve conflict and advocate for yourself is a skill, not a talent. You can get better at it. And so for me, as somebody who was always a people pleaser, this was a mind boggling revelation. And so then I started to invest more in negotiation and, and focusing on that. And so our school had uh, negotiation competitions and we, I, my partner and I, we won the competition at Ohio State. Uh, that gave us an opportunity to represent the school at um, the regional competition uh, for the American Bar Association in Ottawa, Ontario. And then we won that as well. And then we made it to the semifinals of the national competition in New Orleans. And so I was hooked. And so I said, no matter what, negotiation is going to be a massive part of what I do. I don't know exactly how I'm going to weave this in, but I'm going to figure it out. But more specifically, I want to I want to help people to recognize that they can improve their lives and improve their ability to advocate for themselves, because that's really important. It was a revelation that I had through this process, and I wanted to be able to share that with the world. And that's where we have the American Negotiation Institute. Does your company invest in professional development training? If you believe that your team would benefit from a negotiation workshop, all you need to do is go to our website, fill out the workshop request form, and then we'll set up a time to chat. These workshops are completely customizable and we've done them all around the country. Negotiation and conflict resolution skills are beneficial across all professions, but they're especially useful in procurement, purchasing, sales, sourcing, and contract management. Our calendar is filling up quickly and we even have some workshops scheduled for next year. If you think you might want one, I'd suggest reaching out soon so you don't miss out. Check out the link in the description to learn more. And we will be right back after this. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we're changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. So come figure it out with me on the Hello Monday podcast. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives, like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or NYU professor Scott Galloway on choosing a career. I think the worst advice you can give a kid is follow your passion. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. 
Listen to Hello Monday with me, Jesse Hempel, on the LinkedIn Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. And you've likely been able to achieve that. Even reading this book, there's a lot of psychology intertwined with law and negotiation. It's a combination of all your passion in one book. Exactly. Thank you. Yep, that's exactly it. In, in first grade, you had this life-altering experience that informed the way you think about race, handle race, or even deal with conversation about race. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. And so this goes back to one of the what I was talking about earlier. No matter how nice people are, if you're different, there are, there are going to be some hurtful circumstances that happen. So I remember in first grade, six years old at the time, just going out to the playground and looking for a friend to play with. And so I remember going to one group of friends asking, hey, can I play with you? And they said no. Then going to another group of friends saying, hey, can I play with you? And they said no. And then as time was expiring, just getting desperate, can I play with you all? And they said no. And so I tried to put on a, a stern, a strong face. But when I got inside for recess, I just started bawling, just started crying. And then the teacher said, well, what's wrong? And I said, nobody will play with me. And so for me, when I look back on my life, that was really instructive because, or, or I should say impactful, because for me, it, it turned me into a people pleaser at that time because I said, I need to work really hard to get people to like me. That's the ultimate goal. And so it, I found it really hard for me to stand up for myself because I didn't want to jeopardize or risk the relationships that I worked so hard to achieve. You know, And so for me, I realized that there had to be a little bit of self-work that went in to, to, to building my career the way that I wanted to. I can't be a lawyer <laughs> where, where people are walking all over me, right? And so the my first book was all, all about finding, the title is Finding Confidence in Conflict, but helping people to overcome those psychological and emotional barriers to having these difficult conversations. In this most recent book, How to Have Difficult Conversations About Race, I still included that element, but I focused on racial trauma. And so that experience made it really tough for me to have tough conversations about race because I want to feel included and I don't want to risk um, being ostracized for how I think, how I feel, what I believe and what I've been through. And so, again, that type of experience leads you to hold back. And so I want people to take the time and, and look inside of themselves and ask themselves, what is it really that's holding me back? in these difficult conversations. Everybody's gonna have a different experience. Everybody's gonna have a different barrier you know, that leads you to, to perform and have a performance gap that manifests itself in different ways. But we have to be really honest with ourselves and that introspective process can take some time and it can be kind of painful. But like we, like we say, my, my, met, my, um, my saying is, the best things in life are on the other side of difficult conversations. That goes for the internal negotiation as well. We need to be able to have those really impactful internal difficult conversations in order for us to really get the get to the next level of our growth. We need to have those internal conversations before we can have the external conversations. And the way you structured this book is structured into three parts: the problem, the solution, and taking action. What was your writing process like? 
<laughs> the writing process was me waking up in the morning and saying, I don't want to write this book <laughs> and then forcing myself to write it every day. That's essentially what, what it was, man. But I, my, my process is a little bit different. And uh, what I do is I spend months once I get an idea for a book and I just do a brain dump. And so I'll go on long walks. I'll ask, ask myself questions and then I'll just dictate. And so I'll just keep on talking and talking and talking out these notes. So I probably had probably like 250,000 words written. And then I organized it by chapter, by section, and then um, started to build the build from there really. And it's a team effort as well. You know, so I have my, my team organize these, this like massive blob of thoughts, <laughs> put it into the chapters. And then I have them take the first shot at, at writing. And then I go in and I put it in my voice and I, I put the ideas down. It has to be a team effort to get something like this out. And I, I want to be able to write as frequently as possible. My goal is to be prolific. And, you know, I could see many books coming down the pike in the next few years. But the one of the challenges is that a lot of times the things that you want to write are so clear in your mind. And when you first expose it to other people, they're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I'm like, don't you see it? Why, why can't you see this? And um, it's a humbling experience because you have to, you can't just give your ideas raw. You know, you have to, you have, they have to be more refined and you have to have m multiple eyes on it. And um, I thought I was done with this book like seven different times. <laughs> Tell me about that. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You know, I thought I turned in the manuscript. I was like, I'm done. It's like, no, we we have barely begun the process at the manuscript portion. You know, it's, it was really challenging. But I, I liked the um, the and this was a lot of the influence of the publisher. I really appreciate working with them because the um, the clarity and the organization really was a massive push from them. They, they really pushed me to organize it in a way that was really easy to follow, that built on each other, like where each chapter, each section built on each other. And, <laughs> you know, for me, with um, me being a, a nerd in psychology and negotiation and persuasion, I'm like, listen, let's, right after this intro, we get straight to the tactics. That's what I want to do. Strategy, tactics, psychology. That's uh, that's all I want the book to be. They're like, hold on, Kwame, <laughs> hold on a second. We 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 need to build this up the right way. And I I, I appreciated it and I, I understood it. And um, yeah, the the book, the, the the partnership that I had with the publisher and the editors and things like that really is what made the book. Because when you think about like what the original manuscript looked like, it's a completely different product by the end of it. Yeah, and it's reflected in the final product because every page is like a power punch. Thank you. Yes. And you, you mentioned in the book that the reason everyone should be talking about race is simply because of the word care. Can you elaborate? Yes. And you would love this uh, this little tidbit. The, the, um, the first, that's chapter one. Why should we be talking about race? Fun fact. That chapter was the very last chapter for me to write. It was the last one. Um, and I didn't want to write it because I was burnt out at the time. 
<laughs> but the, the the publishers were saying, listen, there's something missing. Like we're not understanding. We, we haven't really conveyed why we should have the conversations. It's, it's like we're starting at the wrong point. So we're starting with the assumption that everybody already thinks that we should have these conversations. And one of the things that was really tough for me is that the answer seemed so obvious that I couldn't articulate it. It took me weeks to even get started writing that. They gave me the mandate that why should we have these conversations? It took me weeks before I could even put it together. And I think sometimes when things are obvious, it's really, really hard to see. And so it just comes down to the word care. Like, what do we care about? We care about our colleagues. We care about progress. We care about fairness. We care about making the world a better place. Those are things that we care about. And you know, you never hear somebody say, you know what? I care about this thing so much that I just refuse to talk about it. <laughs> like that's not how people show that they care, right? And so if we really care, we have to have these conversations. And if we really want to do something, we have to be able to talk it out because conversation has to come before action, especially before coordinated action. And if we're trying to really change the world, we're trying to have a, a positive impact on the world, it's not something that we can do alone. We're going to have to work with other people, um, people who are like-minded, people who might see the world differently. But regardless, conversation is going to be a part of it. And we're not going to have those conversations unless we do care. And why is race itself a difficult conversation to have, especially between people of different races? It's not that difficult if you're talking to someone that is like you. Yeah. Why is it difficult to have any cross-section space? I think it comes down to, to one word, and it's emotions. Emotions are what make these conversations so tough. But why are these conversations more emotional? I think that comes down to two things, morality and identity. So morality, what does it mean to be a good or bad person? And identity, what does it mean to be a person like me? What does a person like me think? What does a person like me do? And a lot of times what ends up happening is our conceptualizations of identity and morality are threatened um, by these conversations when somebody brings in a different perspective. And that triggers a heightened level of emotionality. And so you see a lot of defensiveness coming in because people are, want to focus on just naturally, this is a natural human response. They want to protect themselves in this situation. And they want to put themselves in a position where no matter what happens in the conversation, I can still feel like I'm a good person. And I believe that you see me as a good person. And when it comes to the identity, I want you to respect who I am. And I want you to respect my lived experience and not deny my lived experience without giving, without treating me with respect by listening. Right. And so whenever those things seem to be threatened, it leads to a heightened emotional response. So I want people to be able to anticipate that in themselves, the, in themselves and in others, and also have a playbook that they can resort to so they can actually know what to do when those predictable emotional responses uh, present themselves. Because the thing is that <laughs> it's a really tough situation, but people's emotions don't play by our rules. And so even if you don't feel as though somebody has the right to feel the way that they feel, it doesn't change the fact that they do feel the way that they feel. And now if you want to have a productive conversation, you have to do something about it. And then again, people would say they should, people should act this way. They should comport themselves this way in the conversation. Cool. 
Well, listen, as a parent, sometimes I think my kids should do certain things. Doesn't change the fact that they don't do that. And I have to have a conversation. And that's why Kai's jumping around in the background of this conversation, <laughs> distracting me while I'm trying to do this podcast, you know? And so I have to be able to rise to the occasion. And it goes back to that, that section where I talk about reclaiming your power. And so I'm not talking about your power in a Machiavellian type of way where we're trying to remove somebody's agency. No, I'm, think, I'm talking about it from our position because a lot of times we take these powerless stances where we blame the other person for what happens in the conversation. This conversation didn't go well because they're misbehaving, because they did this, because they said that. And so if we're doing that, then we put ourselves in a position where the the success in this conversation is contingent upon the other person performing at an exceptionally high level. If they perform perfectly, then we'll have a perfect conversation. But if they step out of line, then then it's their fault. And we're too busy pointing fingers and blaming other people for the failures of the conversation instead of taking responsibility for what we can do. And this is not the the whole personal responsibility narrative type of thing, you know, that that can hold us back in policy-based discussions. What I'm talking about is recognizing that a lot of times we find ourselves in a situation where it is not our fault. And then we recognize that something needs to change. And if we want that thing to change, we can't look around for other people to step up and have the conversation. A lot of times it's our responsibility then to have the conversation. And even if they step out of line and say something disrespectful, that's not our fault. It's their fault, but it's still our responsibility to be the adult in the room and steer the conversation in a productive direction. And what you realize is that when it comes to this topic or any difficult conversation in general, it's not that the skills required or the strategies that you will utilize are very difficult to understand. I, I want to. I went out of my way to make this simple and practical so you could read the book and immediately put it into action. The challenge is that you will not want to put it into action because you will not feel like it because you will be emotional too. And so that's why the emotion management has to start with us. If we can manage our own emotions, then it puts us in a position where we can start to manage the emotions of others. Managing our own emotions and also about identity. Yeah, when talking about identity, you debunk the notion of having a situation where people call color blindness, where people choose not to see color and believing that that is the solution to issue of race. Can you tell us the story behind that? Yes. So I, re I remember I was on a friend's podcast. It was a Dutch podcast. And um, he was saying that in, in the Netherlands, the strategy a lot of times is to treat everybody the same and essentially say that we don't see race. I don't see you as a black person, Kwame. I see you as just another person. I'm another person. We're all equal. And I believe that comes from a good place because so much of racism comes from the fact that we are focusing on the differences. And that is what often leads to people um, creating these these arbitrary separations, which cause so, causes so much problem, so, so many problems. And so people say, let me just avoid addressing those differences. So it comes from a good place, but it becomes problematic for a couple of reasons. Um, first, it's not true. <laughs> like we can see those differences. <laughs> and second, um, it, it puts us in a position where we are denying ourselves the opportunity to solve problems because if we're not able to talk about solutions then we can't solve problems and then lastly it's not or somebody's race is not something that is shameful that needs to be avoided right 
Um, and so it's not, we don't need to avoid talking about that. So the example that I gave in the book was on that podcast. I knew my friend just had a, a son and he was very proud of the fact that he's a new father. And so I said, okay, well, how would you feel if I said that I don't see your son? And he says, what, what do you mean? I was like, yeah, I don't see you as a father. I just see you as another person. So I, I don't see your son. And he's like, yeah, I wouldn't feel very good about that, right? Because that's a part of his identity that he he cares about. It means something to him. And so denying that can be hurtful. And so I don't need you to not see my race. I'm black. I like being black. You could be whatever race and you should like that about yourself too. That shouldn't be a controversial thing. And I think it comes down to learning to be able to be a little bit more comfortable with acknowledging that and recognizing that the acknowledgement of race as a thing does not make you a bad person. Acknowledging race doesn't make you a racist, right? And so a lot of times those are the types of self-limiting beliefs that can hold us back and inadvertently do damage in the process. Okay. And some people might pick up the book and look at it, look at who wrote it and look at the back, see your picture, read your bio and think, what gives you the qualification to write this book? <laughs> and that's, yeah, that's an internal negotiation I was having before writing the book. I was like, are you, are you all sure you want me to write this book? And I think there's an, a, a level of imposter syndrome that, that just comes with self-awareness, you know? And um, I think for me, I wanted to stay in my lane. And I made it really clear in the introduction. I said, I'm not going to teach you how to think about race. I'm going to teach you how to talk about race. As a negotiation expert, a conflict resolution expert, that's my zone of genius. That's where I'm going to stay. And so I don't want to be prescriptive and say, this is what we should do. This is what we shouldn't do. I have my opinions, but I think other people who are more well-read on the topic should be the ones leading the charge when it comes to discussing policy changes. But when it comes to discussing how we can create those changes within our organizations, within our communities, and how we can have those difficult conversations and persuade people, now that's where I could come in because that is my, that is my lane. And so I think by narrowly, like narrowly describing what I'm going to do and what I will not do, I think that was really helpful when it came to, for me, just feeling confident enough to write the book and then for others feeling confident in me writing the book. Thank you. And you mentioned in the book that the heartbeat of racism is denial. Yes. Yeah, that is a that is a quote from Ibram Kendi, um, author of How to Be Anti-Racist. And yes. it's it's true, because if we are able to deny that we have a problem, then we are preventing ourselves from getting a solution. Right. I mean, the, anything in our house. Right. Um, you know, <laughs> if I were to talk to Whitney and Whitney's like, hey, Kwame, there's a mess over here. Clean up the mess. And I'm like, hey, Whit, sorry, I'm in a post mess society and I don't see messes. I don't see messes. Right. Then we're not going to clean up the mess. You know, that's not a good situation. I'm not, and if I deny that there's a mess in that room, then <laughs> the mess is just going to stay. Right. And so denial is a really, really powerful tool when it comes to preventing problems from being solved. You know, it, it just maintains the status quo in a way that can be really problematic without putting yourself in a position where you actually need to to stand up and say something. Because if I just deny the existence of something, then I'm denying my right and your ability to actually have a conversation about that thing. 
And so denial is a really massive issue that we're still dealing with today. So that's why it's so important for allies and advocates to have a tool that they can go into these conversations and actually show people what the problems are and then invite them into the process of, of coming up with a solution. Thank you. And you did address even the denial syndrome when it comes to come out with people of color when they tell their narratives about issue of race. You have people who are considered allies who might not even think of themselves as racist or they, they're not even racist, but they just can't empathize and they might be like, maybe it's not about race. <laughs> and you call exactly. that reflexive rejection. What is the antidote to reflexive rejection? Yeah, with reflexive rejection, what we realize is that people, because of their biases, they will reflexively reject a point that you make. And so imagine a situation where you haven't even fully articulated your point and the person is already disagreeing with you. It's like, hmm, well, that disagreement came pretty quickly. I don't think there was much rational thought behind it. You felt like it was wrong. You didn't think that it was wrong. Those are two different things. And so whenever we're confronted with a situation where you feel as though you're running into reflexive rejection, where no matter what the person is psychologically predisposed to reject whatever it is that you're saying, recognize that you're probably in a position where more data will not help. This is a situation where confirmation bias, for example, will be at play. And confirmation bias is a, a bias where you have your conclusion and you will stick to that conclusion no matter what. So a lot of times we have conclusions in search of evidence. And so this is how I feel. This is my conclusion. How do you know that? Hmm. Good question. Let me figure that out in front of you. <laughs> right. And so that can be really problematic. And so what's interesting, though, is that, again, with biases, biases are subconscious. If you just say, hey, I think you might be dealing with some confirmation bias. <laughs> of course, people are going to reject that. So you can't be that direct. And so what you want to do is you want to help them to expand their perspective. What is it that they don't see? And if they see you as the enemy, what's going to happen is they're going to push back on everything that it is that you're saying. So you have to approach this in a way that generates a little bit of trust that encourages them to be more vulnerable with you during the conversation. Because change, changing your perspective and seeing the world differently especially in a difficult conversation, requires a level of vulnerability and trust that doesn't happen by accident. Because a lot of times, you know, listen, I'm not going to speak for you, <laughs> but sometimes there might be a conversation where you're in an argument and then you go back and forth, back and forth, and then you realize you're wrong and you're like, I'm not letting this go. <laughs> I, can't, I, can't let this, <laughs> I can't let this guy win, right? And so sometimes we approach this, these conversations in a way that are, that's so combative that the other person cannot bring themselves to adjust simply because they don't feel comfortable adjusting in front of you, right? And so I, I talk about the, the parable of the element, the, the five blind men and the elephant, where this is an old story, but a different twist on it. And so they, the story goes, they bring five men into a room and they have them, um, and they're blind men. They can't see the elephant, um, but they have them touch the elephant and describe what an elephant is. And so one man says the elephant is like a big column because he's feeling the elephant's leg. Another person says an elephant is like a rope because they're feeling the elephant's tail. Another one says an elephant is like a fan because they feel the ear and so on. And then they start to argue which one is right, which one is wrong. 
they're both, they're all right. And they're all somewhat wrong as well. Right. And so a lot of times in these situations, people have these blind spots that they don't know that they have. And so what I want to do in these conversations is I want to help them to see the rest of the elephants so they can get a more complete picture. And so I'll ask them a question to see what it is that they understand and what it is that they don't understand. And eventually you'll ask a question where they don't have the full answer that triggers a little bit of curiosity, which allows them to be a little bit more open to learning more. So at the end of the conversation, I want the person to say, yeah, I started to see things a little bit differently um, after talking to Kwame. I don't want them to say, yeah, Kwame beat me into submission and I had no choice but to acquiesce. <laughs> you know, that's not the approach that we want to take in these conversations. Okay. And you also did acknowledge that talking about race, especially with this conversation, we are highly likely to make mistakes. Yes. So how do you handle these potential landmines? So a couple of things. First thing is a disclaimer. Just let people know like where you what you know, what you don't know. And just say, listen, there let's say we're talking to somebody with a different background, a different racial or ethnic background, and you're you're you want to learn more, but you recognize that out of ignorance you might say something offensive. And so you could just say, Hey, listen, we, we have very different backgrounds. And I just want to say before we start off that um I want us to have a really good working relationship. And I want to also apologize in advance if they're going to if I say something in the future that is offensive. I just want you to know that's not my intent. But for the sake of our relationship, I want to encourage you to let me know when that happens so I can do better, so I can treat you respectfully and we could have a good relationship. Just a simple disclaimer like that gives you a lot more grace when you do inevitably make a mistake because you probably will. And it gives you an opportunity to learn. And then the other person doesn't take it as personally. They say, ah, oh, yeah, you know what? Kwame told me about this. He said this might happen. This is probably one of those times. I'm not going to take it personally, as personally, right? And now let's say you make a mistake. The simple solution is an apology, but you need to make sure that you're doing it in the right way. And um, the best way to do this is focusing on the word, the words if versus that. So I could say, I'm sorry if what I said made you feel offended or um, made you feel hurt, or I could sorry, or I could say, I'm sorry, that's what I said made you feel that way, right? And so we want to focus on that. That's the best way to do it. Because if we say the word if, it seems like we're calling into question the person's of subjective experience. You can't, you can't do that. People do not like that. It makes things worse. And so what we want to do is we want to take full ownership by saying, I'm sorry that what I said, or I'm sorry that what I did had that impact on you. It's my, uh, my apology. And then you want to commit to, to making sure that you don't do it again. That's the second element of an apology that's often missing too. Okay. You talked about implicit bias, confirmation bias, and attribution bias. Can you tell us about these biases that we all have in one way or the other? Yes. And so biases really, just put simply, the way that I describe it is a bias is a subconscious preference towards something or prejudice against something. It's either reflexively positive or reflexively negative. And bias is really the natural state of the brain. Um, biases exist so we can save time in our brain so our brain can operate more efficiently. And a lot of times the biases don't have a negative impact. So for instance, if we did not have any of these biases, any of these mental shortcuts, our day would be crippled from the jump. 
It's like it, we wake up, the alarm goes off. You're like, what am I doing today? I need to <laughs> analyze my whole world afresh every single time, you know, but it makes life a lot easier when you're already biased towards a certain cereal. It's like, okay, I need cereal. That's going to be cinnamon toast crunch. Got it. Cool. Right. It, it makes life easier. The problem is sometimes our biases will lead us to make mistakes and make bad decisions and we won't recognize that we're making these types of mistakes and as it relates to biases about people it could make us lead us to make decisions that have a negative impact on people that are unfair because we're not taking into consideration the things that really matter so for instance that gut feeling that says yeah i want cereal i'm going to get cinnamon toast crunch um, could lead me in a, a hiring situation to say, yeah, you know what? These two candidates are pretty much the same, more or less, on the resume. But yeah, I like, I like, I, I just get a better feeling from Mark. Yeah, Mark like, might look exactly like me, and, and that's exactly why I get a better feeling, right? And so that's where the biases get in, in in the way. So that's generally how I would describe the implicit biases that we face. Well, then we talked about confirmation bias, which is our conclusion in search of evidence. And so for whatever reason, you are emotionally uh, tied to a specific conclusion. So for example, let's talk about a situation where you might let's say you're you're a white person and then you find out a certain term is offensive and you say no it, that's not offensive uh, to this race of people but <laughs> you're not that race of, so you can't really make that call right and so let's say hypothetically that they grew up at a time and in a place where everybody said that type of word everybody used that term and so the emotional tie that is leading them to say that it is okay to use that word comes from the fact that if they believe that the people who use this type of word are making a racial mistake then they have to believe that the people from their childhood that they love and respect we're making those type of mistakes. And that goes back to what we were talking about with morality. I don't want to believe this because of what it means for all of the people that I know and love from my hometown. And that could be the genesis of the confirmation bias. And then the affinity bias is essentially, I like you because you are like me. I see you as one of us. And so there, therefore, I see you as my on my team. So I have a prejudice or a preference toward you. Right. And so the affinity bias is something that can really get in your way when it is when you're having these difficult conversations, because, again, you're going to be more you're going to have that preference toward people who are like you and when it comes to making decisions. A lot of times we conflate trustworthiness or um, the or worth with familiarity. And that could be really problematic. Yeah. And you did have a prescription for hiring when people say resumes and say they see funny names that doesn't look like theirs, you know, they end up you know, calling them for interview. I actually had an experience like that when I was looking for work. And I sent out resumes with my name in my Holowale. I didn't get a call back. So I changed my name to remove the I put an apostrophe in front of the O. So it became O Wale. So uh, a lot of employers thought I was Irish until I showed up and they see this black African guy with an accent and I still didn't get mm. the job. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. So, I, I how feel do you, I we mean, deal with this? Yeah, I think well, in those situations, we we have to put in structures in place to fight those biases, because there are the, the, like the example that you gave has been demonstrated over and over again with different resume studies. The same resume, for example, in one study, um, they, it was just callbacks based on the name. 
and they just changed the name, uh, a Brett versus Jamal, for example. And so the person who is a Brett is going to get 25% of the time they're going to get a call back. But the Jamal, I think it was 11%. It was pretty significant. They did the same thing with white and Asian sounding names. And again, it was pretty significant. The gap, 21% for the white sounding name versus 12 or 15% for the Asian sounding name. So this is a, a serious consideration. And so organizations have to do different things in order to figure out how to address those types of biases. If not, those affinity biases, for example, will get in the way. So, for example, using a panel of interviewers, not just one person, right? So you have many different diverse voices in the interview, listening and hearing from the candidate. Um, the other thing you could do is blind interviews to a certain extent. So you apply, but you don't include your name. And then the people who are evaluating the, the resume don't know about name, gender, those type of things, right? And so what you have to do is you want to create these systems and put these systems in place where they don't have those same biases so that you can make those adjustments and be feel a little bit more secure in the fact that you're making a better decision. Thank you. Yeah, you also, there's a profound statement I found in the book. It says that if something is done was done legally, doesn't mean it was done equitably. Meaning that a company can have a structure in place where they're doing everything by the book, but it doesn't mean it's fair. Can you elaborate right. on that? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of things that are problematic that don't violate laws. And I think that was one of the most interesting things that I learned in law school. You know, we we go to law school, we see all these books, we see all these laws. And I, and I left law school feeling like there was a legal answer for almost every situation. Now I get out into the real world and I realize just how much <laughs> it falls between the cracks. That doesn't come close to a a, a legal matter. But as a policy matter, as a social problem of uh, society, it could be very problematic, right? And so I think we have to recognize that the laws are there for extreme circumstances, but they're not going to offer much guidance in these everyday types of situations. When it comes to determining right and wrong, where it's, it's really fascinating to see how subjective that can be, which demonstrates just how important the ability to negotiate, persuade, and have these difficult conversations is in these in in the workplace and in our personal lives too thank you and thank you and when it uh, when it comes to talking about race especially between people even within the same race depending on how it goes you have this situation where everyone is trying to compete as to who gets it the worst so we call that the great pain-off competing about who is the <laughs> worst victim of racism. How do you handle situations like that? Yeah, the first, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I think the first thing is just to, to realize that it's happening, you know, because it's almost like, you know, imagine two siblings arguing about who was most wrong <laughs> to, to the parents, right? The parents like, this is not helpful. <laughs> And we just find a solution here, right? And a lot of times when we are in these situations, it's just cathartic communication where I don't feel good and I want to be heard and the other person doesn't feel good and they want to be heard. And then they feel as though the other person's vain, uh, pain invalidates their own. So they try to level up. And so it becomes this competition of whose life was worse, right? And I think we have to, what we have to do is start to, to acknowledge what, what is happening 
the emotional desire in ourselves and others and take the time to to just validate how somebody is feeling and and their lived experience right so it's it's like yeah emmanuel that that was a really tough situation it sounds like you had a really tough go at it at this time and then you summarize what it is that you heard to show the other person that you're listening and now the thing is every conversation has to have a topic if you want to just have a conversation about like race or law or sports <laughs> i mean whatever the topic is there have to be some guardrails or the topic will never end right and so when we want to have these conversations we have to be very clear on what everybody's goals are and then also like what the outcome could be in a lot of these conversations there is not a specific goal the goal is just simply to be heard and so once we start to recognize oh we, even though our my goal is to be heard and their goal is to be heard why are we going ab about invalidating each other's experiences oh okay i see just the psychological competitiveness that comes from these types of conversations blended with the emotionality can lead us astray in that type of way and so i like to think about the term conversational leadership where i take responsibility for showing the other person how they should comport themselves in the interaction so if i recognize that that there starts to be a bit of a pain off happening where I share something that hurt me, they share something that hurt them, and then we just kind of keep going in an escalating spiral. I'll slow things down and just say, hey, hold on one second. I just want to say um, my goal isn't to, to, to put my experience over yours. And I, I hope that's not your goal either. I just, my goal is to make sure that we can leave this with a better understanding of each other's perspectives. And just taking that, that time to level set could be really helpful. Hmm, like I said, and the, the way you wrote the book and your prescription in the book, too, is balance. You're not just writing from the point of view of a black person. You also were writing from the point of view of a white person and the kind of defensiveness that could come up in some of this conversation. And you stressed about empathy. What is the importance of empathy and listening when it comes to having these difficult conversations? Yeah, it's critical. And um, <laughs> in the book, I, I say, listen, um, I know a lot of communication experts will come up here and tell you, you need to empathize. Well, I'm going to do that. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm going to do. But I wanted to empathize with you that it's, it's hard to do. So when I think about empathy, I'm talking about um, understanding how the other person sees the situation, understanding how they think about the situation and understanding how they feel about the situation. So what is their perspective? What are their thoughts? And then what are their emotions? Those things are very different. Sometimes somebody might have certain thoughts, but then their feelings might be something completely different. Interesting. Let me, let me go deeper into that. Let me reconcile those differences and put that together so I can get a better understanding. Oh, you're coming at this from a different perspective. You're coming at it from your lived experience based on this situation, and I'm coming at it at a different perspective, right? So I want to know where you're coming from, not just focus on um, imposing my viewpoints on other people. But then I wanted to go deeper and, and differentiate between different types of empathy. We have automatic empathy, which just happens by itself because you look at the other person and you see them as one of your own. But if you look at the other person and you see somebody who is not on your team, then it becomes much harder to empathize with the person. So, for instance, if we're watching sports and the, our, the person on our team hurts their knee, we might see ourselves like grimace, like, oh, ouch. Or we might even grab our own knee just out of just sympathetic pain naturally that wasn't a choice but then if we see somebody else on the other team get hurt 
We don't respond that way. We might even celebrate, <laughs> right? And so what we have to do is we have to recognize that if there are different levels of, if there are differences between you and somebody else, racial differences, gender differences, anything like that, it makes it a little bit harder for you to empathize and you have to focus on it. And we have to rem remember empathy is a skill as well. Empathy is something you can improve with time and practice. And so people saying, hey, Kwame, I'm not very empathetic. Uh, what, what, what do I do about it? Practice. I mean, what do you, you you're not good because you're not practicing it. So practice. You're not going to be good at anything if, if you don't practice. And a lot of times we over-intellectualize uh, over these challenges when the solution is just to do it and practice so you can do it better. You have to practice empathy. Otherwise, we can have these difficult conversations. You have to be willing to at least listen, put yourself in the other person's shoes and try to see what perspective they're coming from. How, exactly. do, you, how do you manage a situation where someone is denying your lived experiences, especially when it comes to issue of race? Yeah. And so the, what I realize is that a lot of times we're going to want to attack we're going to want to fight fire with fire and say factually, hey, you can't do that. You're not allowed. How, do, how are you going to do that? Right. But what I find is whenever I get very emotional in the conversation, usually the first thing that I want to say isn't the right thing to say. And so I want to slow things down and just get curious because honestly, it is kind of interesting. Right. It is really interesting. It's like, how, how are you coming to that conclusion? That's fascinating. And so I don't attack what it is that the person is saying. I pay attention to the reason why they're saying it. So for example, if I talk about my lived experience as a, as a black person in America and somebody denies that in experience, I'll say, interesting, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you are kind of unsure about the, the story that I just told or my experience. Am I sensing that right? So I'm not going to go and counter directly what it is that they're saying. I want to go to that feeling first. I want them to start to realize that there was some reflexive rejection there. I shared a story. You rejected it before even getting to the substance or really re re reasoning with it. That element of this conversation is fascinating. So for me, I want to help them to explore what it is that made them <laughs> so resilient, re resistant to that point in general. And so it change, completely redirects the conversation. And so the person might say, no, it's not that I don't believe you. It's more like I just never have heard, I've never heard something like this, right? And so they're, what I'm doing in these conversations is I think of myself a lot of times as their own internal voice. I'm thinking of myself as their internal voice doing the introspection that they should have done before they had this conversation with me. But they didn't. Fine. That's cool. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to help you through this. And a lot of times if we go to the real root of the resistance, rather than trying to duel with them based on facts, that's when we can have a lot more of the of, of a, a productive conversation. And I think it's just really important for us to realize that in a lot of these conversations, just difficult conversations in general, but conversations about race in particular, we're going to run into situations where the real barrier might present itself as factual, factual, but in reality, it's emotional. And if you address that emotional resistance, then everything becomes easier. So my methodology is really based on avoiding unnecessary barriers to success in these conversations. These conversations are difficult enough, 
But if we can start to identify and remove those emotional barriers before actually going into the substance, everything becomes a lot easier. Great. We eliminate emotions or try to regulate our emotions to make the conversation smooth. Then you talked about code switching as one of the solutions to talking about race. And well, having come from your background and the kind of life you've lived, that's one of the ways that you have been able to navigate the complex world of, you know, your existence. Can you tell us about code switching and how it works? Yes. So code switching, this is, it's funny. Yeah. That was another part of my book where I was like, mm, this might be the thing, Emmanuel. This might be the one that gets me canceled. <laughs> there, are a couple of, there are a couple of sections where I'm like, this might be the one. Um, and with, um, with code switching, essentially what this is, is changing the way that you approach conversations and interact with people based on who you're talking to. And it's something that everybody does to a certain extent. So think about how you would talk to your parents versus how you would talk to your friends versus how you would talk to your children versus how you would talk to your spouse versus a client, right? It is the same you. You just change yourself a little bit based on the context. Everybody does this in different ways. Now, when you think about it as cultural code switching, um, now we're talking about code switching based on the culture. So for instance, the way that I talk to my white friends is different from the way that I talk to my black friends. The way that I talk to my African-American friends is very different from the way that I talk to like my West African friends and my Caribbean friends, right? And so I tell a story in the, the book where I was talking about code switching uh, with one of my black friends. And um, he, he said, yeah, I don't code switch. I, I am who I am. I don't adjust myself for, for white people or anybody. And I said, um, do you realize I'm code switching with you right now? <laughs> <laughs> like, what do you mean? I said, I didn't, I didn't have consistent interactions with African-Americans until college. You know, I, I did not. <laughs> I, it was my Caribbean family, um, a, a few African-Americans here or there infrequently, and then white people. And so learning how to code switch with African-Americans came in college. And so for me, I can still be very authentic but adjust myself slightly based on the cultural context. Now, the important thing is when you're code switching, the only way you can code switch in a respectful way is if you genuinely know a lot about the culture. If you have been around people in the culture, if you have not, then it just seems like mockery. And then you're, you're in for trouble <laughs> because it comes off as very disrespectful, you know? So I think it's something that if you have it in your toolbox to do, then it is a tool that you can use. But if you feel as though you're editing yourself and compromising who you are, then that's a problem. So for me, when I, when I make this strategic decision, a lot of times it happens automatically. I'm sure you've seen this too. If, if a family member calls, then you probably sound a little bit more Nigerian when a family member calls me. I sound way more Caribbean, right? It just happens naturally. And so I think it comes down to authentic authenticity and whether or not you know enough about the culture to pull it off. But like I said in the book, if there's something that doesn't feel authentic or it doesn't feel right, then you shouldn't use it. And so I don't want people to to leave um, like my trainings or st stop reading the book or listen to a podcast and say, you know what, my goal is to to negotiate like Kwame Christian. No, my, your goal should be to negotiate like a better version of yourself. Just pick and choose what works for you and then put it into action in a way that feels comfortable. 
Yes, thank you. I think having this conversation is like following a roadmap or following the road. You have to be able to follow the band. And part of that could be code switching, you know, understanding other people's culture, translating their culture to benefit you. You know, that's how humans survive. Otherwise, you might find yourself not being understood and not being able to understand other people. You also talked about exactly. the story about your wife with me going to the doctor during for a pregnancy test, or is it is it was it during when she was pregnant, something like that? Oh yeah, when she was pregnant, the maternity visits. Yeah, the maternity visit, and how you had to bring it to the attention of the doctors that she's also a doctor. Tell us about that story. Yeah, and so this was an example of how you can make bias work for you, and this. <laughs> You know, as I'm going through this interview, I'm realizing, man, there were a lot of places where I thought that <laughs> that I was going to get canceled. Um, but when it comes to to bias, a lot of times we have this defeatist mentality where, hey, there's a bias in place. I guess I guess it's over. I can't. I, there's nothing I can do. I wish racism wasn't the thing. It, whatever defeatist mentality we put into place. But I want people to think about bias as a strategic consideration. What are the biases that might be working against me? Let me think about strategies to overcome that. But then also thinking, what are the biases that I can ethically make work for me as well? And so I, that ethical part <laughs> is a very important layer here, right? It's like, hey, let's weaponize racism. No, that's not what I'm talking about, people. I'm talking about being mindful about the psychology of the situation. Um, and so the example that I gave in the book was talking about how we can make affinity bias work for us. And so again, you are like me, so I like you, is the way that we would define affinity bias. So similarity is what brings us together. And so I, being somebody who worked in civil rights before, who was specifically focused on health equity and the, the disparate health income, the, the disparate health outcomes of people of different races, I knew that women as, or just people in general who are darker skinned often have worse health outcomes and more specifically worse treatment from medical professionals and so there are many studies that demonstrate this and so for me i want to make sure that whitney doesn't end up as a statistic uh, like just just like everybody else you know I, I want to do what's best for my family in this situation and so whitney's a doctor and so in these conversations i would always find creative ways to mention hey you know oh whitney's a doctor too or Whitney's in the medical profession too. And then their eyes would light up. Oh, really? You're in the medical field? Where do you work? Oh, you're at Ohio State as well? Oh, that's great. Yeah. Do you know this doctor? Yeah, I know this doctor. Okay. And so they would automatically just start to warm up. And so I don't know whether or not you would have been mistreated. You, you never know that. But the reality is I know that I diminished the likelihood of mistreatment by triggering that affinity bias. So they could look at her and they're not seeing just another black woman, they're seeing somebody who is like them, a fellow person within the medical profession who, who's trying to keep people safe and healthy. And so that's an example of how you can trigger a little bit of a bias working in your favor ethically, um, ethically. in a difficult conversation or a situation. Yeah. And I think it does work because from personal experience, I had an experience last year where I, you know, I was sick with COVID mm -hmm. and I was so sick that there was no way for me to communicate. So they didn't know I was an attorney. So I wasn't treated very well. But then whenever I go to the doctors and I 
tell them, you know, I'm a lawyer. It's different because then they know this is a fellow professional. So it does work. Absolutely. Absolutely. And oh, wow. This is, well, we're almost over an hour. So, but this is, I'm really enjoying this conversation. But I'm still going to go ahead and ask more questions. What's the difference between calling in and calling out? Yes. And so let's say something bad happens, something that we think is is problematic happens in, for example, a meeting. And it was something that happened in passing. There's no ongoing threat, right? And so what we could do is we have two options, calling in versus calling out. And so calling out is when you publicly let people know your displeasure of what it is that somebody else did. And calling in, on the other hand, is when you call the person aside and privately address it. Now, here's the strategic consideration. If you call somebody out in front of other people, then you put them in a position where they feel obligated to defend themselves. No matter what the situation is, they cannot save face in that moment, or they feel they can't. And so it's not a conversation, it's more of a presentation. And then on the other hand, we have, yeah, we have, you see, you see what I'm dealing with, man? I'm trying my best to stay focused. And this kid is crawling like on the ceilings. Um, But uh, on the other hand, we have calling in. And this is where we have a conversation with somebody and we bring them in and we we talk one-on-one. And so it removes that performative element. It allows them to be more vulnerable and they they will avoid putting up those natural defenses. You're still going to have those defenses, but they're not it's not going to be as robust and and difficult to overcome in those situations. And so the the conversation becomes easier the smaller the audience becomes. And so strategically, when you're having these conversations, especially if you're holding somebody accountable for performance, you want as as much as possible to turn it into a calling in situation versus a calling out. And this book, who is it for? Is it for companies? Is it for individuals? Is it for online conversation? Is it for Twitter warriors? Who is it for? Yes, the uh, there was a chapter that did not make the cut on uh, on the uh, on the online negotiations. Actually, I should post that. I should post that. Um, but yeah, like all of the chapters that didn't make it. <laughs> but um, but yes, the I would say it's for anybody who wants to create positive change, or anybody who found themselves in a situation where they have ever said to themselves, a conversation about race has come up. I did not handle that well, or I wish I would have handled it better. Or you've looked at somebody else in a conversation about race and said, I don't want to end up like that person because that didn't go well for them, right? I think we can all look back on our life and recognize that we probably have had a conversation about race and we probably could have done better. And I know for you, you mentioned before we started, you were able to use one of these techniques in a conversation with a client as well. And that's what people are really surprised to see is that, they say, yes, this is incredibly beneficial for me in this conversation on this specific topic, but every single principle can be applied in any difficult conversation you're having. And the way that I think about it is if you are having a difficult conversation and you can manage to have a difficult conversation about race and you can use these tools and keep your head and have a, a, a productive conversation on this topic, then you can handle anything else. So I really think any professional who is in a multicultural workplace or has to interact with people of different backgrounds, this is definitely a book they should read. Thank you. And is it for employees and employers or is it for one or the other? 
Yeah, I would say both. I would say both because we have it from the perspective of we have case studies from the perspective of employees trying to create change in their workplace when they don't have the power or authority, which is tough. Influence without authority is really challenging. It's a completely different strategic challenge. And then we also have it from the manager perspective, the leader perspective. I want to lead a team that's diverse. I want to be able to treat people fairly. I want to be able to do a little bit of an analysis and see how I can overcome bias and I can overcome the biases of others and create a positive workplace. There's uh, good stuff in there for them as well. So it's anybody in the professional environment, that's really the goal. And it, it was tough narrowing that down. So I wanted to make sure that anybody who read it could get some value out of it. And where can they get this book? You know what, man? That's a great question. I <laughs> The digital version is still available on, on Amazon, um, but we sold out of the physical copies. So we sold out of, like, of the, the physical ones. So like the only... <laughs> The only person who has extra physical copies is me <laughs> right now. So hopefully like in the next month or so, we can re-up and get those copies back online. But anywhere books are sold, um, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, those type of things, uh, we'll, we'll restock the tangible copies. And the audiobook is going to be coming out here in the next few weeks as well. So you'll be able to get your copy for sure. And now can you be reached? Yes, best place um, to connect with me if you if you want to work with us, check out AmericanNegotiationInstitute.com. Um, we do negotiation and conflict resolutions trainings and then diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings from the perspective of skills and cultural intelligence. Um, and then also on LinkedIn, I'm constantly posting on LinkedIn. I try to post every single day. LinkedIn is definitely the best place to reach me. Um, I try to add as much value as I possibly can. Thank you. And what does it mean for you to come on Legal Angle to educate the public about having difficult conversations about race? Oh, man, I love it. And especially as a fellow lawyer, you know, it, it's I love to see lawyers who are podcasting and getting the word out and, and helping people to to grow and learn. So just to be part of that and then to help you with that mission, that means a lot. So I appreciate you trusting me with your audience uh, to share this message. Oh. Thank you. I appreciate you too. Like I said, you've written a blockbuster. This is yeah. one of the best book I've read this year. You know, it's packed with a lot of power, with a lot of wisdom, you know, knowledge, and clear path to having this conversation. And you can live in the United States or even in the world these days without having to confront the issue of race. Thank you for coming on Legal Angle, and I really appreciate the time you took to have this show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. And for those of you listening to us or watching us on YouTube or Facebook, thank you for joining us. Until next time, stay safe. Bye for now. Congratulations, you've just joined an elite club. By listening to a full episode, you're now officially on the Negotiate Anything team. So welcome aboard. What most team members do is they subscribe to the podcast because that allows them to automatically get the latest episodes of the show. The best things in life lie on the other side of difficult conversations. Keep learning, keep practicing, and keep getting better. Your relationships will improve, your career will soar, and you'll have the confidence you need to get the most out of these crucial conversations. Again, thank you for joining the team. We're excited to have you, and I will see you in the next episode. I'll catch you later.